Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Kelly for uh, Hip Hop History, uh, History 304. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about rap producers. Rap producers, and I'm not going to lie, I'm especially excited to talk about this one. It's actually a newer lecture I've written for the class. Uh, whenever I first started this class, I didn't do this. However, you know, every so often I change up some topics, and uh, this is one that, you know, I thought about putting in whenever I first did the class. I held off on, but I've decided, nah, definitely do this one. And it's one I really enjoy. Um, it's probably the topic that got me into um, hip-hop history as a real discipline, as like a real interest, something that I want to base like my master's thesis, my doctorate, or dissertation on. Um... Back when I was just a fan of rap music, pretty early on for me, I mean, back when I was like in middle school, high school, I realized that like, huh, a lot of my favorite rap songs, it's not really the rapper that I like, it's the producer. It's, you know, there's a certain sound that some of them have. And um, this is a topic that's actually kind of unique to rap music. Uh, compared to other genres, rap producers have a lot more influence in the creative direction of the music and often become major players on their own. Um, there have been other big name producers, uh, throughout, you know, the history of recorded music, different genres have big time producers. However, the personality and particularly the way that they craft the sound is very unique to hip hop, very unique to hip hop. With that said though, it's kind of hard to really put a hard and fast line upon what a rap producer is and a rap producer isn't. Uh, sometimes they're a performer. Sometimes they aren't. Um, a lot of the times they are sound engineers. They're people who actually like know how to do the sound engineering, you know, sit behind the, the mixing board and do all that stuff. Um, many of them aren't, though. Many of them aren't. Oftentimes they own the record label, but not always. Um, some are especially well-known and trumpet their names at the start of tracks and show up in music videos. Others are incredibly reclusive, or you may not really know that they're even there. Uh, there's a lot of different styles in play, uh, but in general they're all rap. Uh, rap in the sense that they're all hip-hop guys. Uh, they can produce in other genres, but they usually come back to rap. They usually come back to rap. Um, this lecture is going to cover some of the, the history of rap producers and a few of the biggest personalities kind of around the mid-2000s. Uh, yes, we're going kind of back into history to like the 80s and stuff for this one. However, we're going to be really focusing on like, you know, late 90s, mid-2000s, that sort of stuff. Uh, also unique for this week's lecture is I have a Spotify playlist. So if you listen to the Spotify playlist, I have pretty much all the rap producers I've talked about, uh, and a couple of samples of some of their songs. So if you really like want to hear like what the sound is different with them, uh, yeah, go for that. So if you go to one more slide, early history in the beginning, there was the DJ. All right. If I know I cover this in earlier classes, earlier lectures, but when you're talking hip hop, you're really talking about the DJ. Early rap music is all about the DJ. Uh, before rapping even, before you know a rapper who rapped words over the music, there was the music. When you talk about the the founding fathers of hip hop, the you know the, the, the big three, Grandmaster Flash, uh, DJ Cool Herc, and Africa Mabata, none of them are rappers. They are all DJs. And it's really hard to emphasize how central DJs are to early hip hop. Basically, they're crafting a whole sound from sampling bits and pieces of other songs, pretty much whole cloth. It's very difficult to do when you're just talking about like mixing two songs together because it's the whole song. I mean, if we're talking in a pre if you're just having two turntables, uh, you know, just with record scratching, yeah, there might be fade ins and stuff, but like 
you're not able to separate individual sections of music, the, the drums, the bass, that stuff like that. It simply isn't really an option of the technology at the time. Uh, the technology at the time, the way that records were recorded, they don't allow for just you know bringing out specific beats or drums or whatever bass lines, uh, hand claps, whatever you wish, uh, pretty much what modern-day sampling has become. The earliest rap music cannot do that. Now, once rap, this is like pre-recorded rap music we're talking about here. Now, once rap music starts to get recorded, um, it's a completely different ball game than most early uh, record producers, sound engineers are able to do. If you go over one slide, you will see a circa, you know, late 70s, early 80s recording studio. And it's a completely different animal than what hip hop music really needed. And uh, it's just a completely different skill set. You know, the things that you would use for a traditional recording is not something you might need in hip-hop. Uh, traditionally, the record producer is much more of a business individual. Uh, the record producer is generally the one who owns a label. They are a producer in the traditional sense of the term in that they are putting up the money for this. Uh, just like a uh, movie producer or a Broadway producer, any kind of artistic producers, generally they're not so involved with the creative side of things, more involved with the financial side of things. And they would do things like work alongside an audio engineer. They, they wouldn't be there for all the takes, but, you know, they would listen to a, to a take or two or, you know, with the audio engineer, maybe have some dailies or something. And they would like, you know, they listen to it and be like, ooh, pull the bass up a little bit, you know, have the bass player, you know, sit a little bit closer to the recording equipment or, or that take was whole ter of terrible. Uh, they generally helped to craft the sound, which was generally played all at once. Um, it's not really until the 70s and early 80s that multi-track becomes a thing. Okay, and now we got to get into a little bit of nerdy technology stuff for recording stuff. Okay, let's get into how most music is made nowadays. Uh, regardless of genre, this is not just for hip-hop, pretty much all music. In general, all music nowadays is recorded uh, with a multi-track. With a multi-track, generally it starts with a click track. Uh, the click track, it's basically like a metronome. It has like, you know, a, a regular pace. And then you, it gives a steady beat. And then each instrument records its, uh, its section separately. Um, drums usually come first. Uh, you know, they, they build upon each other. They may or may not ha be having the earlier recording in their ears while ever they're recording their new part. Sometimes it's all just a click track. Um, Oftentimes, they record everything else before they add the vocals. They sometimes have like a sample vocal to go along with it, where it's not really the musician. It might be a studio musician, or sometimes even a computer program in modern days. Uh, multiple takes also might be played and used. You know, you might be listening to several different takes, and you're like, wow, the first verse is really good on this take. However, the second verse is better on the fourth take, but let's take the bridge from the second take or whatever. And so the resulting song is an amalgamation. The, the resulting recording, the thing that you hear, I would say on the radio, but let's be real, you ought to listen to the radio. But the thing that you might stream, the thing that you might listen to, you know, through your AirPods, it's going to be an amalgamation of different tracks that were never played together all at once. Individual instruments can be mixed and the like, and it's very dependent upon computers and other technologies. Um, it certainly makes it easier. It certainly makes it easier for musicians. Uh, you can, you know, you may not even need to be in the same building whenever you're doing some recording nowadays. Now, older music, like the stuff that's recorded in that recording studio we have there, right there on the slide, have none of that. Um, if you're talking about like the stuff that early rap music sampled, the you know the funk songs, your Earth, Winds and Fires your James Brown, Parliament Funkadelic. 
Uh, all those groups recorded as a single band. Now, that can be very hard to do because there are so many variables. You know, when you're talking about a group like Earth, Wind & Fire, or good God, Parliament Funkadelic, uh, when you're talking about, like, the dozens of people that are in that, and, like, all the musicians that are together, and the fact that you're in a recording studio, and, and maybe you can't hear all the instruments so great, um, it can be very hard to do because of all the variables. You know, if you want to do it in a very cost-effective, uh, not just cost-effective, but time-effective way, you know, recording with 20 or 30 or 40 different people, okay, maybe not 40 different people, maybe for an orchestra or something, but, like, I mean, probably Funkadelic, George Clinton would, like, get it up to, like, the 20s and 30s for the amount of people recorded. It can be pretty hard to do. Now, for most of these bands, particularly, like, Earth, Wind & Fire and Parliament Funkadelic, they have recorded together for years. Not just recorded together, they have played together for years. Uh, Earth, Wind & Fire is a great example the core of the group is two brothers. The core of the group is two brothers. Uh, pretty much everybody else has been in the band for, for decades by the time they're recording the songs that you might know of. And, uh, you know, they, they play together live quite a bit. So they have a, they have a shorthand with each other. They really know each other. Um, there's also the concept of studio musicians. Uh, studio musicians, uh, these are really, really good musicians. Very good musicians who don't really tour. They don't really stay with any one band for various reasons. Uh, touring life is pretty hard. Um, it's also a more stable paycheck if you're working for a studio, even if you may not be getting scale rates. Um, you might be uh, getting a more consistent job. Uh, if you're in a band, it's often feast or famine. If you're, you know, if you, the, the, the group gets big where well, you're eating high off the hog, but then, you know, your next album stinks or you, you have a couple of duds and by God, well, you're broke again. Uh, if you're a studio musician, you, you stay in the same place and you, you know, you generally uh, have a much more stable existence. So, yeah, you also have to be pretty good as a studio musician to sit in with all these people. Uh, yeah, I, I, by the same token, this really doesn't have any pertinence to right now, but do know there are such a thing as touring musicians, which are a completely different animal than studio musicians. It's, it's very complicated. So why do I tell you all this? Well, let's put early rap recordings into a bind. Uh, yeah, pretty much early rap music basically only subbled funk records, but how to record it was an issue. Uh, since rap seemed kind of akin to disco, many early labels things like Sugar Hill Records, they try to use disco producers, disco studio engineers, uh, since that was what was available. This was frustrating because disco people didn't really know how to record this new genre. Remember, this is supposed to sound like a live party. Uh, oftentimes, disco um, sounds very polished, very slick. Um, you know, definitely not something that sounds live. And rappers hated the way that the resulting mix sounded. Um, if you listen to some of the earliest rappers, some of the earliest, you know, pre-recording rappers, you know, you're talking your battle rappers, uh, your nightclub rappers, your DJs, whatever, uh, those who didn't, you know, the, the, those who turned down Sugar Hill Records, so, you know, Sylvia Robertson had to make up the Sugar Hill Gang by itself, uh, they would say that the resulting mix sounded bad because it just didn't sound right. And the other issue, though, is beats. The other issue, though, is beats. Um, Hip-hop was limited by the beats and the drum rhythms of funk records or whatever else they wanted to sample. Uh, when you're dependent upon what other people have sampled, when you're dependent upon what other people have recorded before, the drums and beats that people have recorded before, you're very limited. Yes, it can be sped up or slowed down. It can be set up or slowed down. Uh, there's even some pitching they could do. So if you speed it up, you can pitch it down a little bit so it doesn't sound as you know high-pitched. 
Uh, but it's still very limiting. It's still very limiting. What if a rapper or producer wanted a brand new beat? What if they want to make something completely whole cloth, something that doesn't, you know, it's a completely new sounding invention? Well, that's where the, if you go over one slide, the Roland TR-808 comes in, be better known as the uh, 808. Now, it's very easy to be hyperbolic about an invention. There are a lot of inventions that we talk about in history where you're like, oh my gosh, it's the most important invention ever. Um, that said, it is impossible to overstate how important the 808 was to the development of hip-hop. Was this the first drum machine? No, it was not the first drum machine. Was it the first programmable drum machine? Also, no, there have been other drum machines before that. Uh, going back as early as like the 40s and 50s, they have drum machines, even some with some pr like primitive uh, programming ability to it. But was it the first affordable drum machine? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. I would compare the 808 into something like the Ford automobile. Uh, Ford did not invent the automobile. Henry Ford, you know, the Model T was not the first automobile ever made. However, it was the first one that like people could afford and the first one you saw it around. Uh, the iPhone was not the first smartphone. However, it was the first one that you probably saw around and you could have. The 808 was the first like obtainable drum machine. I want to say it retailed for about $2,000 in 1980 which is about eh, $4,000 or so in today money. With that said, though, that is much cheaper than any other drum machine was, particularly one that could be used in recording. So what is an 808? What is a drum machine? Why is it so interesting? Well, here's the deal. This is different than electronic drums. You might have seen electronic drums. I know they have these kind. I always see advertised on TikTok or whatever, where they're like little drumsticks with USB cable, you know, you can charge them and like beat it, and it just sounds like an electronic pad or something. Um, that's different. A, a drum machine has a lot of different drum sounds, which can be programmed. If you look at the picture of the 808, you will see the different bars of music. You will see there's like, you know, four bars or something like that. And yeah, it's four bars, 16 notes. So, you know, 16, um, sorry, 16 quarter notes, four bars. It's got a lot of different drum sounds that can be pro programmed. All right, so if you look on there, they have snare drums, hi-hats, cymbals, etc., and they can be layered on top of each other. It can be layered on top of each other to make very complex beats, beats which did not exist beforehand, uh, beats that basically otherwise you'd be dependent upon finding an old funk record or something where James Brown did do that. Well, James Brown's drummer did use this particular beat. Uh, now you could create your own beat whole cloth. Now, does it sound realistic? Oh, good God, no. Good God, no. But that's kind of the point. It, it's, it can sound synthetic, which, remember, in the 80s, is actually pretty popular uh, in pop music to have a synthetic sounding, synthesizers, things like that. But it also allows for unlimited number of beats. It allows for unlimited number of beats. And also, you could change the beats per minute without changing the pitch. Remember, even though they had some primitive pitch-down technology, um, it's much better on this for the fact that you could speed up a drum sample and the drum would not sound much worse. Sorry, it would not get pitched up. Now, in Roland, Roland's an older musical company. They've made all sorts of electronic equipment. Um, my mother, for the long time, had a Roland piano. She was not a hip-hop person by any stretch of the imagination, but she did have an electronic Roland piano. 
This was introduced in 1980, not for the hip-hop market. Uh, Roland was not known for doing anything hip-hop. Roland did not have any interest in hip-hop. And it was originally actually supposed to be used for demos. This was not even supposed to be used in recording, period. This is basically a device that a you know a sound engineer or a record producer could use to like program a neat beat and then like let the drummer hear it and then the drummer would be like all right cool like I can do that live. Um, or it could create an early backing track for recording. Uh, this is some of the most early, not the earliest click tracks, but obtainable click tracks for like a recording studio. You know, two thousand dollars in nineteen eighty money, about four maybe four and a half thousand dollars in today money i know that sounds like a lot of money but for recording equipment particularly good recording equipment that's actually quite cheap there's really no push to use it in rap music it was really no reason to use it in rap music pretty much went in originally to uh, various recording studios which happened to record rap music and whenever like the rappers and rap produce well not rap producers but whenever rappers and djs in particular heard this they go nuts they go nuts. They're like, oh my God, this has unlocked everything. We're no longer dependent just upon sampling. We can now create our own beats. Now, it gets much more complex as things go on, but we're going to get into that. But this is a huge deal. People who got good on 808s became the first quote unquote rap producers. Seriously, the first like people who were like specialized in rap music are 808 users. They make beats done like that are not that have not been done before. A prime example is Planet Rock. Uh, Planet Rock, if you ever once live, that's Africa Mbada's first recorded song. It sounds very 808. Um, it is kind of a Kraftwerk song, which is a German style of techno. Uh, the better example, though, is Run DMC's early stuff. Um, Run DMC's early stuff. Um, it's like that in Sucker MCs. They are both strongly 808. Um, you better believe in the 808 is one of the things that Rick Rubin got his very permissive parents to buy him for his uh, recording studio slash dorm. Um, it's Yours, the first rap song he ever recorded, well, he ever produced, was 100% done on an 808. Um, yeah, 808s are everywhere. 808s are everywhere. Uh, if It's one of the things that if I hear a rap song, I can tell you immediately that's an 808. And here's the thing. As soon as you listen to these songs... You might not even know that, you know, that's what it was called, but you're going to be recognizing, oh, yeah, that definitely sounds like a certain type of instrument. You've heard these beats before. Uh, certain of these sounds in particular, like the snare and the clap, are very known for, like, all sorts of rap music. So once the 808 becomes more popular, of course, other manufacturers get into the act, and the drum machines become more sophisticated. Rap becomes more of a key demographic. And also the technology gets much more complex for things like um, split tracks, for things like a split track. Um, it, the recording is not fully computerized yet. It is getting there. It is getting there. But for instance, it's now possible for doing things like a tribe called Quest, for instance. Uh, they would take individual elements of various songs and sample them together, not the whole song called Cloth. So basically, as the recording equipment and the drum machines become more, uh, become more complicated, they could use different formats to like just record a drum beat from one jazz song. Uh, Tribe Called Quest does it a lot for their second album, where they record like just a drum beat. Not even just a drum beat, but actual drum hits. Like basically like the, the sound of a drum for this one beat in an old jazz record. And they use that just one sound, and they craft that with other jazz stuff and other things. 
So you could have a much more complex, you know, sample mixed with the 808, mixed, well, not, not 808s by this time, but, you know, mixed with a drum machine where you are programming beats with like individual drum hits or horns or whatever from earlier songs. Um, it's sampling several songs at once. It's going to become a lot more complex and more refined. Uh, this is really uh, cu- coupled by the introduction of the MIDI file format in the early 90s. Um, it's the first real like computer format that is used often for sound and recording. It allows for even more minute controls over sonic elements. This is really where clicker tracks comes into play. You can have a primitive trigger clack, ah, clicker track, say that five times fast, with an 808. Um, but... Thanks to the MIDI, it's it's much more cleaner sounding, and you have much more regular clicker tracks. This also really levels the field. This also really levels the field uh, for recording studios and musicians. You no longer need to have a massive amount of musicians playing all at once. That costs a ton of money. Or the resources to do several full takes. Instead, you could just get samples and mix several takes together to make a, a crafted result. Now, was the resulting music often called soulless? Yes, a lot of times people call it soulless. It sounds too synthetic, too computerized. But most rap people loved it. Rap, most rap people loved it because it was so obtainable. It was so fairly cheap. And really, I hate to use this word, it democratized the whole process. The fact that if you had an 808 and you know a computer that could do midis, you could create as good of a beat as somebody with several thousand dollar recording studios. And I should also mention... Um, I don't think anybody in rap ever bought an 808 brand new. Uh, they were often gotten used. They were they were instructable little devils, I can tell you that. And so, you know, you get one used, third or second hand, you know, for a couple hundred bucks, if that. And you can make as good of a beat as anybody else. Um, you know, we have that with technology now, the fact that, you know, you could make an app or something, you know, SoundCloud's another good example. You can create as good of a whatever, a beat or whatever, as professionals or big companies and, you know, access to the public just as much as anybody else. Now, this is at the heart of rap production, all right? At the heart of rap production is the 808, is the MIDI, is the ability not just to sample but also craft beats or even craft beats with samples, it's also seen as the move away from the DJ. The move away from the DJ in that they are exclusively mixing old records. Uh, some might say that producers and engineers become the new DJs. A lot of people do say that. So let's get into some early names. Getting some early names. Go over one slide, you'll see Rick Rubin, and my gosh, that is Mick Jagger. You're going to see Rick Rubin, Mick Jagger. I've kind of already covered some of the early names, but I'm going to do a quick little recap. Uh, Rick Rubin was probably the first rap producer in the multifaceted sense of the word. Um, He owned the record label. He did sound engineering and developed a distinctive style that can be heard in multiple groups. If you listen to old Def Jam, old Rick Rubin stuff, you can really um, pick it up pretty easy. However, he does tire of the genre pretty quickly. Um, You know, Rick Rubin is not an active rap producer, like exclusively a rap producer, only for about three years. Um, he stops producing early. Uh, he stops producing that. Nah, stops producing rap music exclusively early on. Moves on to other stuff. Uh, you might know him for his work with like, uh, probably, well, this is probably a little before your time, but Johnny Cash. He recorded a bunch of stuff with Johnny Cash in the mid two thousands. I want to say the last rap song he really did. Well, I remember it was a big deal whenever Ninety Nine Problems came out with Jay Z because it was oh my god, you know, Rick Rubin is back from producing a rap song for the first time in like almost twenty years. 
Um, another early name who had a distinct sound would be the Bomb Squad. Uh, they made stuff with Public Enemy. Uh, they really only work with that one group, though. You don't really have the Bomb Squad. I mean, they're mainly sound engineers. They don't really do too, too much um, outside of Public Enemy. Another early name with a distinct sound would be the Boogie Down Productions. Boogie Down Productions, uh, they work with KRS-One and other groups from Queens, uh, mainly early groups from Queens. Uh, we'll cover them later. Uh, the, the Native Kongs Collective in particular is one that we're going to talk about later. Uh, KRS-One, we're not going to talk about too, too much, but he does have a distinct sound. However, uh, Boogie Down Productions really does influence the Native Tongues Collective, who you're going to hear about whenever we talk about the uh, more backpack rappers. Honestly, if you want to talk about the first people who get, the first real person who gets the same level of notoriety as the rappers, as producer, would be Dr. Dre with NWA. Uh, Dr. Dre had a distinct sound. He works a lot as a sound engineer. Honestly, by the time he starts working at Death Row Records, he is only a sound engineer. He does not really mess away with the business stuff. And later on, owns his own record label. Uh, he owns Aftermath. Uh, I wouldn't really include Suge Knight, though, in this vein, because he doesn't really do too much with the music production. He's just business. Even though he is listed as a producer on pretty much all of the Death Row albums, it's a bit different. If you go over one side, another one you can include is probably the RZA uh, for the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, that's another group I don't really think I talk about too much this semester. Pretty important, though. Um, he's also kind of problematic because he mainly only worked with the Wu-Tang Clan. He did bring out, branch out into other fields, but he was never really the attraction like some of these other people. Um, the RZA, like I said, he's best known for Wu-Tang. Um, he will record and you know other things for other people, but not as much. Honestly, if you go over one slide, the one who really set the standard, and we've talked about him already, the one who really set the standard of like what a rap producer is seen as, this kind of like show booty, on, over the top, uh, really focal point of interest is Puff Daddy. Uh, Sean Combs, P. Diddy, Diddy, whatever you want to call it. Um, he became the attraction on the song. He's the first one that like mainstream, aside from Dr. Dre, who never really rapped that much, uh, Puff Daddy was really the one who becomes featured on the albums, featured on the songs. He would work in the lab occasionally. He would occasionally sound engineer. But by and large, by the time he's getting notoriety, he lets other people do that. Um, he does everybody else. Uh, he becomes known for things like the producer and label shout out. You'll hear him you know, say his name, say, you know, this is bad boy, baby, things like that. Uh, he does get some criticism of this. Uh, basically, he responds to his haters by saying, quote, don't worry if I write rhymes, I write checks. Um, basically there have always been accusations that he had ghost writers or he didn't really, uh, he was not really a rapper or a hip hopper in the true sense of the word. However, he's like, it doesn't matter. I'm rich. I get a lot of good records. He is criticized a lot by this. He's criticized a lot. Another line against him was uh, puff daddy. I didn't believe you're still in. Yeah. I can't believe you're in business. I can't believe you're in business still. I didn't know wearing a suit was a skill. The idea being that puff jam really puff jam. Wow. Puff Daddy really doesn't do anything. He barely raps. He kind of just dances around. Doesn't even really dance that much. Just kind of says his name in Bad Boy Baby. But still, he is becoming a focal point. Really elevates the producer in the eyes of many, of many audience members. By the time we get to 2000, more emphasis is being placed in producers and in their role in rap music. And that's kind of a good place to pivot to, into a bunch of the producers during this time period. And I got to note, this is not really chronological. It's more of a survey of different producers during this time period who got notoriety. And it's also not exhaustive. 
It's really just a bunch of producers who are popular in the mid-2000s that I find interesting and kind of uh, reach on to this larger point. Reach on to this larger point. If you're one slide, you're going to talk about the first one of these producers, uh, at least chronologically, probably, would be Timbaland. Timothy Mosby, a.k.a. Timbaland, greatly influences the changing hip-hop sound of the late 90s. Um, as of this past week, he was just inaugurated into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, which is really interesting because... Uh, yeah, he, he's, writing a, he's written a bunch of songs, and he's also more on the sound engineer side of a lot of these producers. Uh, later producers we're going to talk about, uh, they don't really do much you know, sound engineering. They don't really work in the lab too much. Uh, when I say lab, I mean recording studio. But that's Timbaland. He actually is, though. So what do we know about old Tims? Well, Timbaland, uh, he was born in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, one of more than a few producers coming from Virginia we'll be talking about, uh, born to, in 1972 to two very middle-class parents. Um, he also kind of keeps on the trend of a lot of people in early hip-hop, well, not early hip-hop, but he, very comfortable middle-class existence. Um, his mom ran a homeless shelter. Uh, his dad worked for Amtrak, you know, very, you know, comfortable upbringing, uh, very middle-class, you know, not really in the lower ghetto hood, whatever the heck you want to call it. Um, his, like I said, his, his upbringing was very conventional, very safe, nothing, you know, he, he was, he's done interviews where he's like, yeah, there's nothing really gangster about the way I grew up. It was a very safe, very middle-class neighborhood. Uh, whenever he's very young, he becomes friends with Missy Elliott. We'll talk about Missy Elliott uh, whenever we talk about the women, or we might've already talked about Missy Elliott. Not sure whenever you're listening to this. Uh, but she's going to return to Timbaland pretty early and often in her own musical career. Uh, they become friends very young. I think they're like in middle school when they first get to know each other. And by God, they are uh, they're, they're pretty tight with each other, and they stay tight with each other. Uh, he also becomes friends with uh, M- Melvin Magoo Barcliffe. Uh, Magoo is more of a rapper who will become his longtime partner. Um, Magoo actually just died this past year. Magoo, like, just died. Um, also becomes friends uh, with the two brothers from the clips, though. They're more aligned with another producer who we'll talk about later. Uh, now, his first big break in the music business uh, comes through Missy Elliott. Uh, Missy Elliott, whenever she's a young woman, she's like still in high school, uh, her R&B group, Sista, with an A at the end of it, is signed by Devante Swing, Swing Mob Records. Uh, Devante Swing was a member of Jodeci. If you don't know who Jodeci is... Ask your parents about Jodeci. They're a very popular R&B group from the early 90s. Uh, Forever My Lady, stuff like that. Uh, Devontae Swig was the member who was not Casey or JoJo. Uh, Devontae Swig, he has his own little record label. Uh, he signs Missy Elliott's R&B group called Sista. Uh, the problem is Sista never launches due to lack of funds. Basically, you know. Devontae Swing signs them. He ever, however, his label doesn't really have enough money to really put out a full record for them, record an album. Uh, still, Swing sees potential in Missy Elliott. He's like, you know, yeah, sister didn't want to get off the ground, but you have a lot of potential, not just in R&B, but also in hip-hop. Um, you're, you're, okay, you're, you're, you're something special. So he's like, look, I'm not going li- to put out Sista. However, I am going to... Uh, put out you. If you go over one slide, you'll see Missy Elliott, and uh, there's Swing in the middle. Timbaland's right behind Missy Elliott. Uh, Magoo's on the far right. And maybe you recognize a little baby Aaliyah right there, because she's there as well. 
Uh, basically, uh, when Missy Elliott is going to get signed, she's like, hey, I'll go if you bring my friend Timbaland. Uh, Tim, Timbaland, Mr. Mosby, whatever the hell you want to call him. I'll probably just call him Timbaland because it might be easier for you to remember. Uh, Timbaland, she's like, look, Tim has to come with me. Uh, I think he's got a lot of potential. He's really good with like, you know, music and stuff. I think he's a real talent for this. And they all moved to New York City around 1992. So they're both early teens, maybe, you know, sorry, late teens, early 20s, very young. And, and Swing is actually the one who teaches Timbaland how to use recording equipment as well as drum machines. Uh, Timbaland had a mind for this music stuff beforehand. Uh, he did not really have the skill until he starts working with Mose, uh, sorry, with Devante Swing. And so Swing really teaches Timbaland, hey, here's how you produce. Here's how you use a drum machine. Here's how you do sample. Um, he is also the one who gives Timbaland his stage name. Basically, uh, Swing notices that Timberland was wearing Timberland boots a lot, and he mispronounces Timberland as Timberland, and it just kind of stuck. Apparently, Timberland, Timberland wore Timberland boots a lot, and Swing thought it was funny, and so it just kind of stuck. Now, I should mention that even though Devontae Swing promised Missy Elliott that, like, hey, you know, I'm going to, you know, get, do you one, uh, he does not actually sign her. He does not actually sign her. Um... Yeah, yeah, go figure. He does not actually sign her. Uh, he instead is just kind of, you know, letting him hang around. Letting him hang around. Um, they like working around the business. Uh, mainly, Missy Elliott starts ghostwriting. Uh, Missy Elliott starts ghostwriting for other acts, including Jodeci. And Timbaland produ begins producing for other acts, also including Jodeci. They also get to know other artists who are indeed signed to Swing Mob and also... Um, Mainly, other other uh, other groups that are signed. There we go. Other groups that are signed to um, Swing Mob's parent company, which is Atlantic Records, uh, most notably Genuine. Most notably Genuine. Uh, Timbaland really exploded in the scene in 1996 with two R&B productions. Pretty much the first time anybody ever heard of Timbaland is in 96, two productions. Uh, he'd been working along with Swing, Devontae Swing and Swing Mob on some early Jodeci projects. Not really credited. However, it changed whenever Genwine's album The Bachelor includes a song, Pony, which maybe you know. Maybe you know Pony. It's a very distinct sounding song. Perhaps you know it from the Magic Mike movie. Um... This beat was like nothing ever really heard before. Uh, Genuine was not a rapper. Genuine was a R&B singer, but the beat was much faster, uh, I'd say dirtier than most R&B music. Even R. Kelly, who was held as like the R&B crooner who has like a hip-hop soul, uh, his beats were not as dirty, or for like a better term, grimy. Like, I don't want to say street. That's, a, that's the wrong thing to do. But just like, it was kind of like grimy, you know, dirt grit element to it. Not to mention, Timbaland is using sounds in his sampling that had never really been used before. Uh, things like a police siren. All sorts of other very unique sounds which had never been used before in, a, in any song, let alone a rap song. Uh, speaking of which, <laughs> speaking of R. Kelly in 1996, um, R. Kelly's protege slash um, underage wife, 
that's not funny. It's actually child molestation. Uh, Aaliyah signs with Atlanta Records, where basically she's immediately taken in by Elliot and Timberland. If you go over one slide, oh, you'll see Timberland and Magoo. That's her first album together. Uh, I like this picture right here, though. You'll see Missy Elliott, Aaliyah, and um, Timberland together. Basically, whenever Aaliyah signs with um, Atlantic Records, and she is very young when this happens, by the way. The, uh, this is like right after the stuff with R. Kelly went down, so she's now R. Kelly's ex-wife. Uh, she signed with Atlantic Records, where basically Missy Elliott and Timbaland take her in immediately. It's almost like a protective thing, like protective older brothers and sister. are like, oh my gosh, you need to like you know really work upon this. Uh, Timbaland produces almost all of her second album, uh, One in a Million. Uh, basically, he produces all of all of this album, includes even more beats which had never been heard before. I cannot iterate that enough. Uh, this album's a pretty big hit. You know, uh, Aaliyah becomes seen as like a you know one of the futures of, of R and B, the kind of the young starlet on the rise. And if that wasn't enough, he starts writing beats for his old friend Missy Elliott. By this time, Missy Elliott has finally gotten enough attention to stop ghostwriting and get a deal on her own uh, with Atlantic, not with Swing Mob. And basically, uh, her first album, Super Dupa Fly, is. Mosby's first time really making a full rap album. Uh, yeah, there were a couple Timbaland and Magoo albums. They didn't really go anywhere. But this, if you want to talk where Timbaland becomes like a big time, big deal, um, he is a focal point producer. It's with Super Dupa Fly. Uh, the songs, uh, The Rain, for instance, like that is the, God, I can't stop the rain. That's a, that's a Missy Elliott song. The kind of sounds he's using, the kind of it's it's really hard to put in the words. Just how unique it sounds. Uh, just how unique it sounds. Uh, you know, we'll talk more about Missy Elliott's album, or we might have already talked more about Missy Elliott's album on the um, Women of Hip Hop podcast. But this is the one that really pushes him into popularity. He becomes like the most well-known producer, uh, pretty much. <laughs> Not ever, but like in all of rap music, he's pretty much the most in-demand producer around 99, 2000. Uh, he is giving more preference to his friends, more preference to his friends, uh, particularly Missy Elliott and Aaliyah. He'll always record for them. Uh, the songs that he comes out with are too many to list. A lot of them are bangers. They're on the, the lot, Some of them are on the uh, Spotify playlist I gave to you. And his production style is so unique, it's hard to verbalize what it is that makes it so distinct. A better way to do it is to give you some examples in what is sampled. Uh, for instance, in 1998, he and Aaliyah put out the song Are You That Somebody for the Dr. Doolittle soundtrack. Uh, Timbaland actually even has a rap verse in this. Um, he samples the sound of a baby's cry. Like, seriously, if you listen to the, to the hook, the song's not even about children. The song is not about children, and yet he has sampled a baby's cry. There's a, there's a time where the baby goes like, ah, not really a cry, but like a happy happy baby noise. And it works. It works. Also, sometime around uh, 2000, 2001, he discovers Punjabi music. Uh, it's a type of India, like, you know, subcontinent India, South Asia music, uh, specifically the Bhangra style, the Bhangra style. And he goes nuts on that. If you go over one slide, uh, on several songs, he samples sitar riffs and Bangla drums, like all over the place. Uh, Get Your Freak On is the first. If you listen to bit, Get Your Freak On, it definitely has a kind of Bhangra style to it. Uh, also, the picture that is sampled is uh, Petey Pablo's Raise Up. As a actually has a breakdown, where basically the, uh, the Bhangra drums just play for, God, a while. 
for quite a while. This in turn makes India Sound of Music like the hottest thing in rap music for like, you know, 2001, 2002. If nothing else, Timbaland was experimental. He could make fire beats from like the strangest elements. He could make fire beats from the strangest elements. In time, he'd start working with a bunch of pop artists. Uh, he produced nearly all of Justin Timberlake's first solo album, as well as even country rappers. Uh, Bubba Sparks' early work was way better than he had right it had to be because Timbaland was producing it. Um, if you ever look at Bubba Sparks' second album, and uh, his second album is a real one, where like, Timbaland just goes out of his mind with production. Um, Aaliyah's death in 2001, though. Aaliyah does die tragically in a plane crash in 2001. Uh, does mess with Timbaland, however, he keeps on producing. By the mid-2000s, if you go over one slide, he will have his own record label. You might want to know these record labels. It might be on the quiz. Uh, Mosley Music Group. Uh, Mosley Music Group, basically, he has his own record label. Um, he gets a few signees. Probably most notably is Nelly Furtado, uh, who you might know from like music of this time period. Uh, she had an underwhelming music career in Canada, and then she becomes much bigger thanks to Timbaland. There really is no end to the story. Uh, unlike some of these other producers, actually most of these producers I'm talking about are still recording to this day, um, he's still producing, although not as big as he once was. Although not as big as he once was. Like I said, I saw him last week that he got the uh, Songwriters Hall of Fame, so good for him. Uh, probably the biggest thing you might know about is the popular Versus series. Remember that during during the pandemic where the two, you know, two people would go up against each other, like going hit to hit? Yeah, he and Swiss Beats made that in 2020. Uh, throughout the 2020, sorry, throughout the 2000s, he was somebody who would show up in the music video or sing a hook, but he was never really the star attraction. Uh, he was definitely a sound engineer who was well known, but not one to get the spotlight. He's not one to get the spotlight, you know, not one to take the spotlight away. That's not going to be the case with this next duo, honestly, one member, because if you go over one slide, you will see Timbaland and somebody else you may be familiar with, one Pharrell Williams. Uh, Pharrell Williams does get him to start in producing. If you go over one slide, this is probably the producing crew that got me the most into early, you know, me f- hyper-focusing on, like, what producer sounds are like. Um, we the Neptunes, the Neptunes. They're also from Virginia. Uh, they're also from Virginia. Um, actually, same same general metro area. Uh, Timbaland was from Norfolk. Uh, they are from Virginia Beach. They are from Virginia Beach. Uh, the duo is Chad Hugo and Pharrell Williams. Chad Hugo and Pharrell Williams. Um, yeah, interesting, interesting people. Um, Pharrell Williams is actually a cousin to Timbaland. Um, not a first cousin, but they are cousins, like second or third cousins. Uh, they definitely have friends. He was definitely friends with a slightly older Timbaland. They knew each other from like family stuff and like school. Uh, Pharrell Williams was born in 1973 to a family that had very long roots in Virginia. Uh, contrary to all rumors of the early 2000s, because I remember people talking about this, uh, he is not of a mixed race background. Uh, he is not of a mixed race background. Everybody said, oh, you know, Pharrell must be, you know, half white or half Thai or something. No, apparently he's all African-American. Uh, however, Chad Hugo, the other guy, is a Filipino-American uh, whose parents were Navy. Uh, they are Navy people. Not a surprise. Uh, Norfolk is one of the biggest naval bases. I think it is the biggest naval base on the East Coast. Um, Chad Hugo was interested in music and recording ever since he was a small child. Uh, so is Pharrell. Now, the place they meet is something that's not very hip-hop sounding. Eh, you know what? It is to be hip-hop sounding. But maybe not what you think of people you know, who become big-time producers meeting. Um, they met at a band camp for gifted and talented students when they were in the seventh grade. 
Uh, basically, Chad Hugo and Pharrell, they are both nerds. I cannot iterate this hard enough. I've had the pleasure of interviewing them. They are nerds. They are giant, massive nerds. Uh, Pharrell played the drums, Chad played the saxophone, and they bonded over the love of music and also being massive nerds. Yes, they are two big-time producers who've made tons of hits, but at their core, they are two band geeks who like outer space, ALF, and a lot of stereotypical nerd stuff. I cannot iterate that strongly enough. Uh, now, Chad has pretty permissive parents. If you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of them when they're still in high school. Uh, Chad Hugo has very permissive parents who let him take over the entire attic with his recording equipment. Uh, yes, they, they have their recording equipment. This is the mid-80s by this point, so 808s are much cheaper and obtainable. And, you know, Chad Hugo is probably the stereotypical kid who makes beats in his attic. Literally, his parents <laughs> let him do this. And, in fact, it's actually in high school, whenever they get, they're still friends, that Chad gets his first drum machine. And they start freaking out, and they start making beats. Uh, mainly Chad, even though both Pharrell and Chad are adept at studio engineering, I'd say Chad is a little bit more of the uh, recording engineer guy. So they also start a band slash production duo that they call the Neptunes. Yes, they get they take the name the Neptunes when they're still in high school. If you want to know why they call it the Neptunes, because they love outer space. They literally named it after the planet. I cannot iterate this enough. They are nerds. But they also like rap music. They're rap musicians who like, sorry, they are nerds who like rap music. And in 1992, there was a talent show. There was a talent show, I think it was at their high school, and the winning prize was a chance to win a meeting with Teddy Riley. That sounds very weird. But if you won the talent show, you got to meet Teddy Riley. Uh, Teddy Riley is a member of, my God, a lot of different important things. He was one of the fathers of New Jack Swing. Uh, he was in the band Guy. Uh, he was later on in Black Street. Uh, very important early producer. Uh, he had just opened up a new recording studio in Virginia, in, uh, in Virginia Beach. And by God, the young Chad and, and Pharrell, they want to win that prize so bad. They want to meet Teddy Riley. They go to the uh, they go to the a talent show, and they actually don't win. They don't win, but Teddy Riley was impressed. Teddy Riley was in attendance, and he's like, you know what? I actually kind of like you two. Come on down to the studio and, and see what they can do. Yeah, just come on down and see what you can do. And it's actually during this time, when they were both still in high school, that uh, they wrote the rap for Teddy Riley's song, Rump Shaker. If you go over one slide, you will see Rump Shaker by Rex and Effect, which is a rap crew that included Teddy Riley. Uh, Riley's brother was also a member of Rex and Effect. Uh, Riley did a very nice thing for the two of them and gave them a songwriting credit. Uh, he did not have to give them a songwriting credit. He could have very easily claimed that they were a ghostwriter or he wrote it himself. But if you listen to the song Rump Shaker, which I think we talk about in the Women of Hip Hop episode because it is kind of notorious, it was a music video that got banned from MTV because of the number of ladies in bikinis and also thongs and butts and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, you might know the song. Anyway, uh, gives them all sorts of credibility. Gives them all sorts of credibility. Uh, gives them, you know, a lot of... My God, how do I say this? They look really cool because they're still in high school and a song that they have a credit for is, you know, topping the charts. So, yeah. Uh, they're also working with Riley for other projects, including Black Street, who you might know of, No Diggity, No Doubt, Them. 
Uh, they're also working a lot with two brothers they know from school, uh, Pusha T and Malice. Uh, Pusha T and Malice. Uh, if you look right there, they are two brothers. They are two brothers. Uh, later on, they're become a much bigger deal. Uh, the two actually try to do things separately. Uh, they actually try to do things separately, like separate brothers trying to rap, before Pharrell convinces them to join together. You know, hey, they're like, hey, you're two brothers. Y'all should be in a group together. That might work better. And call themselves Clips. Uh, where do they get the name Clips from? Remember, they're all massive nerds. Well, Chad and Pharrell are massive nerds. Uh, yeah, it, it's from space. It's from Eclipse. Literally, it's, it was originally going to be called Eclipse, and then they dropped the E because reasons. So Clips, Pharrell, Chad, and a few others in their orbit, ah, see what I did there? Uh, they would regularly meet up at Chad's parents' attic to, like, mess around and record and just do their own shtick, do their own thing. They try to go to college. Pretty much all of them do try to go to college. Uh, Pharrell and Chad both try to go to college. Uh, they both drop out, though, because recording's going pretty well. The recording's going pretty well. Production's going pretty well. Uh, mainly thanks to Riley's connections, uh, they start working with other acts, but nothing really blows them up. You know, they work for about five years or so. Nothing's really popping until 1999. If you go over one slide, you'll see old dirty bastards, I got your money. It's not really the full Neptune's production that you're going to know and I, I recognize, but it's getting close. It samples a lot of very unique sounds, has a very unique beat. Uh, interesting song, Old Dirty Bastard, I Got Your Money. What really gets the national attention, really kind of solidifies their sound, um, is basically whenever Jay-Z. <laughs> Jay-Z hears uh, Got Your Money, he's like, that's pretty cool. Hey, can you work for me? Give me a beat. Uh, uses them for Give It To Me. Uh, Give It To Me is a Jay-Z song. You might know it, might not. Jay-Z is probably my favorite rapper, so of course I know it. Uh, Give It To Me comes out in 2000. Uh, they also record Shake It Fast with a local guy, Mystical. Mystical is a New Orleans rapper. Uh, they record Shake It Fast that really cements the Neptune sound. Really the Neptune sound. Um, it's kind of hard to identify what makes a Neptune song, kind of like uh, Timbaland. Uh it's very experimental, but it also sounds kind of futuristic and spacey. Uh, probably the most obvious thing to note is a Neptune Pharrell slash um, production signature is the four count before the end of, before the beginning of a song. Uh, you can easily find videos. There are TikTok videos. There are YouTube videos where it's like every single Pharrell song sounds begins with a four count. It'll be like doom, 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 doom. Um, Happy is a pretty easy one to think about. But yeah, pretty much a lot of Pharrell songs are going to begin with a four count. Kind of a holdover from Pharrell's drumming days. Probably a holdover from Pharrell's drumming days, the idea that you count out a four beat before you start the song. Now, unlike Timbaland, though, the Neptune's solo projects would become big. Uh, Timbaland and Magoo never really got that big. Uh, yeah, a lot of Pharrell stuff does get pretty big. In 1999, to go over one slide, they start a band called NERD are nerd, but they mainly call it N-E-R-D. Theoretically, it stands for No One Ever Really Dies, but I think it's just the fact that they're a bunch of freaking nerds. Uh, it's Chad Hugo and Pharrell Williams, including a friend of theirs named Shay, who happens to rap. Uh, their first album, In Search Of, was critically acclaimed. I cannot iterate how hard uh, their album, In Search Of, was like the critical darling. It was more of a rock album, though, more of a rock album, a little bit more rock involved with it. Um, they get started getting the accusation that they were keeping the best beats for themselves. Is that accurate? Eh, I can't really say, but it's pretty big. Uh, the year after that, they start their own label. They start their own label. 
uh, called Star Trek. Now, why do they call it Star Trek? Because they're nerds. <laughs> Seriously, pretty much everything with the Neptunes is they are nerds. So talk about the show Star Trek. Uh, the first group that they signed under Star Trek was their old friends, uh, the Clips, and they released their first album, Lord Willen, the same year. Go over one slide. Lord Willen was a huge freaking hit. This one was critically and commercially acclaimed. Uh, Clips, Clips had bona fides in terms of bars, production, and also street credibility. Uh, the two brothers were known for selling... They had a history of selling drugs before they got into rap music. Uh, you know, legitimate rap sheet. Uh, if, if Seriously, the stuff on this is insane. Um, if the Neptunes were keeping the best beats for themselves, the absolute best beats were saved for Clips. Like, I would argue still to this day that the beats on Clips as Lord Willing are just insane. Uh, three singles from this album are very good examples of the Neptune's production. Uh, for instance, Grinding, that was the first big single from this song, from this album. Kind of un- nothing had been like that before. It has like footsteps, uh, panty cap stuff, um, like mouth clicking, uh, and it works. It weirdly works. Uh, when the last time was is another one that has like a very similar uh, beat and, and just really creativity as grinding. Uh, my personal favorite is just like what the hell were they smoking? Well, not what they're smoking. That's rude. But what were they thinking when they put these instruments in this track? Is Ma I don't love her, which is a lesser known single. Uh, includes Faith Evans, Biggie Smalls' uh, widow. It samples a didgeridoo and an oboe. I repeat. A rap song has a didgeridoo, you know, the thing that Australian aboriginals use, and a oboe, you know, the thing that's only, what, Squidward plays the oboe, I think, and, uh, you know, orchestra nerds play the oboe, including my sister. She's actually a pretty good oboist. He gets bigger and bigger. In addition to all this, Pharrell's beginning to become seen as a sex symbol. Um, He's got good looks, good body, great voice. Uh, he begins showing up in more and more of the music videos, oftentimes becomes a bigger draw than the primary artist. Uh, for his part, Chad is not opposed to appearing in the music videos, but he doesn't sing or do anything like Pharrell. And that's kind of the dynamic at play here. Um, they don't produce as much together, but they're still on very good terms. Uh, Pharrell has admitted that he can't really read music outside of a drum sheet music and really doesn't do all that much sound engineering anymore, whereas Chad does nothing but sound engineering. Like, I was a huge fan of the Neptunes back in the day and, like, NERD and all their other groups. I cannot recall a single time where Chad has ever had a verse or anything on any one of their songs. It's always either Pharrell, Shay, or a guest star. Like, I've heard Chad talk, you know, interviews and stuff, but, like, he doesn't put anything on record. Uh, it's a little surprise that pop music becomes calling. The Neptunes do work for Britney Spears and Sing, Justin Timberlake, Madonna, and a whole host of other pop acts. Uh, this really increases Pharrell's profile a lot. Uh, people know that Chad is his partner, but Pharrell's kind of considered to be the face that sells tickets. By the time we get to the late 2000s, the duo was still producing everything, and Pharrell had gotten into like Japanese clothing. Uh, he made all the Despicable Me music. Uh, he's now on The Voice or something. He's done the Super Bowl a time or two. Uh, pretty well-known figure. So that's it for the Virginia guys. Let's kind of move away from Virginia for a second because New York still had something to say and there were new acts coming out of this region that are dependent upon a new sound production sound. There's a lot who could be highlighted, but the one I really want to talk about, the one I think is most germane to our conversation today is Kasim Dean, AKA Swiss Beats. Swiss Beats, there you go right there. 
Uh, where does he get the name Swiss Beats from? Because he loves K-Swiss sneakers. Apparently, when he was a young man, he wore K-Swiss sneakers all the time, and it stuck. Now, even opposed to these other producers, he is exceptionally young. He is exceptionally young. Um, he was born in 1978. He was born in 1978. So, like, when he's making big-time beats, he's barely in his teens. Like, barely. But he has a leg up on a lot of other people who are interested in hip-hop. Um, his uncles had started their own rap label called Rough Riders. You give her one slide, you will see the Rough Rider emblem. Um, Rough Riders was basically his uncle's rap label. Uh, they got interest from Irv Gotti. Or Irv Gotti was a talent agent, a talent scout, I should say, for Def Jam. Who would, uh, Irv Gotti himself would later form his own record label, Murder, Inc., had people like a Ja Rule, Ashanti, people like that. That's not really too important, but just know Irv Gotti really gets uh, attention to Rough Riders where they otherwise might not have any. And so at age 16, all right, at age 16, when he is incredibly young, mainly by pestering his uncles, mainly by pestering his uncles who own the record label, he's given a chance to make beats for Rough Riders, at Rough Riders. Uh, not really work for the label, just his uncles are very tired of him pestering him to, like, do things. So, like, look, if nobody else is in the studio, you can mess around with the drum machine, whatever. Now, a thing about Swiss Beats, he does not like to sample. He does not like to sample. Uh, he prefers to make his own beats. Uh, a Swiss, uh, kind of a hallmark of Swiss Beats music is that he rarely have ever samples. Rarely have ever will he sample. Now, here's where it gets kind of bonkers. If you ever one slide, here's where it gets bonkers. The Rough Riders had just signed a young rapper, Earl Simmons. Sorry. In 1992, they'd signed Earl Simmons, better known as DMX. The, they'd signed him to the Rough Riders. Uh, DMX had not really had a huge single. He'd appeared in a lot of different mixtapes and kind of guest spots. Uh, he got dropped by various labels, but he got kept on with the Rough Riders. Basically, they, you know, he had been trying to do music before this. Everybody had been dropping him, nothing really major. He signed to Rough Riders. He tries to do other gigs. Nothing really works out. And in 97, Irv Gotti convinces Def Jam, not sure how, to, like, sign DMX. Basically do a distribution deal where basically he's still signed to Rough Riders, but also Def Jam will use its larger resources, distribution, more money, stuff like that. Uh, for DMX. And, and and basically, DMX pushes for the Rough Riders to be included as well. Uh, people like Lox, Eve, etc. People who are already signed to Rough Riders. Anyway, uh, DMX needs a single. DMX needs a big single. He's now been signed to Def Jam. He needs a big single. Um, he leans upon Swiss Beats, who, by the way, is 17. Swiss Beats, who is 17. I repeat, he is 17. He is a junior in high school. Signs his basically sells his first single, like the first song that Swiss Beats ever makes. He sells it to DMX, and he records frickin' the Rough Riders Anthem. I repeat, the Rough Riders Anthem. I know some of y'all might not know this. Go ahead and listen to the Rough Riders Anthem. That is a true 90s hip-hop classic. That is iconic. I cannot iterate how influential this song is to New York hip-hop. Like, DMX did not like this song at first. He did not like the the, uh, the beat at first. He did not think it was rap enough. But by God, did DMX's voice, his gravelly voice, and Swiss Beats production make the whole world go crazy. Like, this song coming out was a huge freaking deal. 
This is bonkers how big it is. Immediately, everybody else in New York wanted this sound. They wanted the sound of this kind of, who is this Swiss Beats? Who is this Rough Rider? Who is this 17-year-old? Who is this, you know, who is this now? He's like 18, 19 years old. Who is this teenager? You know, who is this teenager who makes insane beats? He's not even sampling. He is just creating these insane beats nobody's ever heard before. But he's making all sorts of songs for the Rough Riders. If you go over one slide, you'll see him in Jay-Z. I mean, God, Swiss has got to be 19 in that picture. Super young with Jay-Z. Another pretty good example of uh, of Swiss Beats' production is uh, Party Up, also by DMX. Uh, Y'all about to make me lose my mind. It's also not a sample. It's also very aggressive. Uh, much more chaotic than most other rap songs, still having an element of melody. Uh, his production is likewise hard to put into words. That's why I gave you the Spotify playlist so you can listen to their various productions. Uh, in 2001, he has given his own production company, Full Surface Records. I'll repeat, his production company is called Full Surface Records. Um, his first artist he ever signs is a Philly guy, but a guy from Philadelphia named Cassidy. If you go over one slide, you'll see Cassidy. Uh, Cassidy is a very interesting case, a uh, very unique case for Cassidy. Um, Cassidy is probably the closest thing that Swiss Beats ever had to a protege. Uh, he was born in 1982, so he's a young guy whenever he signs. To, uh, he's only 19 himself whenever he signs to Full Surface. Swiss Beats is only like 24, I think, whenever Cassidy signs with him. Uh, Cassidy has exceptionally high expectations put upon him. Uh, the hype around Cassidy was pretty high. Uh, Philadelphia has always had a few rappers, but no very huge name rappers. Um, Cassidy gets a start as a battle rapper. He gets a start as a battle rapper. Um, according to legend, Cassidy is one of the best rap battle rappers to ever live. Um, according to the lore of the time period, like Cassidy, when it comes to a honest to God battle rap, nobody could beat Cassidy. Uh, supposedly the, the legend goes that he, he was in a meeting with Jay-Z once as Paul first surface. And he basically challenged, uh, Jay-Z to a battle. Jay-Z said, okay, I'm not gonna let you go at me first. You got to beat freeway. Uh, freeway is another member of Rockefeller who also happened to be from Philadelphia. And apparently by all accounts, by everybody who was around there, this was not recorded, but everybody, all the eyewitnesses said Cassidy destroyed freeway so completely that Jay-Z was afraid to battle him. Basically, like, Cassidy destroyed Freeway in a battle rap so good that, like, Jay-Z didn't battle him for fear that he would lose. However, the songs that Swiss Beats and Cassidy did together, they had good beats, but the execution was lacking. It's very interesting that Cassidy, who comes off as this, like, hardcore battle rapper, um, that's his whole background. His first songs were, like, a lover type song, a uh, hotel, uh, get no better, pretty good production. They kind of show Cassidy as like a young, good looking lover type, which yeah, he's young. He's pretty good looking instead of a battler. They, they it's weird that he, they don't go for a battle motif. A uh, complicating matters was like right after this first album comes out, Cassidy was involved in a shooting. Uh, he ultimately got ma charged with manslaughter and he served uh, about a year in prison. Uh, right at what should have been his continued career, uh, he was in prison for a manslaughter charge. Um, doesn't really serve that long in prison, but it really put a hit on his career, especially because he was kind of advertised as this lover type. Uh, Swiss kept making beats for him, but it never really recovered. To this day, Cassidy doesn't really do too much. Uh, he occasionally does battle rap here or there, but uh, he's not really put out anything since. 
Meanwhile, he is still putting out so many, so many more songs, not just for battle, not just for New York rappers. Uh, T.I.'s song, Bring It Out, is another good example of Swiss Beats' production. Doesn't sample anything, has a lot of energy. Um, in time, Swiss Beats would marry Alicia Keys. That's what he's best known for today. Uh, pretty much keeping his own production thing. Uh, pretty much does his own production thing. Not as big as he once was, but you'll see him from time to time. Uh, I know he just did the BET Hip Hop Awards. He's a good example of a sound engineer, a producer engineer, who can put out his own songs, uh, but does not appear to overshadow his in his guest spots. I cannot really think of too many songs where Swiss Beats like rapped or like really got too much of the spotlight on him. Uh, he seemed pretty content just to like make the music and make other people look better. Uh, he'll show up in music videos, but rarely does he make himself a focal point. All right, moving on. Let's talk about a Southern guy, a guy I like talking about quite a bit. Um, I'll have to talk about, talk about this guy. He's a Southern producer. He's pretty influential, despite the fact that there is limited information about him. Phelan uh, Alexander, Phelan, Phelan, P-H-A-L-O-N, Phelan Alexander, was originally from Memphis and was born in 1969. So he's a little bit of an elder statesman here. Uh, compared to everybody else. Um, he got the name Jazzy Faye from his first name. Uh, Phelan is the name of one of the guys who died in Otis Redding's plane crash. Uh, Otis Redding, who sang uh, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, dies in a plane crash. Uh, one of the other people who die in this plane crash is Phelan, is named Phelan, and that's who his parents named him after. Um, in 1990, he is signed as a producer for Electro Records, who is trying to increase their rap presence. They're not really into Southern rap. And uh, in the 90s, he is producing a limited but steady number of songs. Uh, kind of a sound engineer guy. Not as much as somebody like Swiss Beats or Chad, but he is somebody who is kind of known. Uh, not really doing Southern songs yet. Southern rap really isn't a thing yet. Uh, if you go over one slide, though, you're going to see his first project that gets really big, though, 2000, uh, Area Codes. Area Codes by Ludacris. Uh, pretty good example of his production. Basic, simple beat, easy to spot drum patterns, and tends to have a slower beat per minute. Uh, that's something about Southern rap. Uh, southern rap tends to have a slower beats per minute when it comes to the music as opposed to other rap music, which have, tend to have a higher beats per minute. However, the song that really defines his sound is 2002's Sick of Being Lonely uh, by The Field Mob. Field Mob is, is, they have a couple of hits, mainly with Jazzy Faye. Uh, 2002 is when Sick of Being Lonely comes out. Uh, they are a true country rap group. Uh, they are basically showing the what it's life is like for rural African Americans. Um, the song really works on many levels. It samples another R&B song, but has a new R&B song on top of it. Has new instruments that is like mixed with sampled instruments. So he has new stuff and mixing stuff, sampling stuff. In addition, has Jazzy Faye to open the song and close the song as well. Uh, that is something about Jazzy Faye. Uh, typically, he does say, like, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Jazzy Fizzle product shizzle. Uh, that's like on every single Jazzy Faye song. He gets really big on that. Uh, his profile is raised high enough, thanks to the uh, Sick of Being Lonely and also his stuff that he does with Ludacris, uh, to make a real Southern rap label, uh, Show Enough Records. Show Enough Records, that is Jazzy Faye's rap label. Remember, you might want to know these for the quiz. Uh, the first person he he signs to his new rap label is a R&B singer he got to know a few years earlier, a woman by the name of Sierra. If you go over one slide, you will see Sierra. 
Now, Sierra's debut single, Goodies, which you might know, uh, was like a coming out party for the Dirty South. Basically, if you look at the music video, pretty much every Dirty South rapper is in there. Uh, she is called the Queen of Crunk, even though she had just started as an artist. Uh, Jazzy Faye produced all sorts of songs for Sierra. Pretty much his prized artist for his label was, um, was Sierra. She was like the biggest name for him for forever. In time, though, she did get too big for him. She did get too big for him. The bigger labels came calling. He couldn't you know, compete with that money. And um, she signed with another label. However, they have remained friendly. They have remained friendly. Uh, he begins producing for pretty much everybody in the South after Sierra leaves, most notably Nelly. But, like, seriously, until about 2010, pretty much every Southern rapper had Jazzy Faye producing for them. Now, what's weird is he kind of drops off after this. Um, I really don't know handily what happened to him. I mean, a couple months ago, he finally did an interview for the first time in, like, a decade. But there have been a lot of rumors about him. There were talks that, like, he had a stroke or something. Uh, he had He did file for bankruptcy in 2016. But he does still have social media. He does like occasional visits to podcasts, hip hop podcasts, and stuff for the time. Uh, it might be argued that the music business passed him by. Um, you know, the fact that his his you know his biggest star, Sierra, gets signed to another label, even though she's so friendly with with him, you know, he can't really find anything else. And uh, I don't know if Sierra's really making music anymore. I mean, yeah, she kind of is. I mean, she's also Mrs. Russell Wilson, so that's kind of interesting. But he's definitely still a producer personality. Speaking of producer personalities, let's go a little bit later and go for the main uh, producer personality. That's right, another one, Mr. DJ Khaled. Uh, he is an interesting case, DJ Khaled. Uh, we'll just talk about his background, and then we're going to talk about how he's so interesting. Um, Khaled Muhammad Khaled, his name is Khaled Muhammad Khaled, Khaled Khaled, Khaled Muhammad Khaled. Uh, he's actually born in New Orleans. He's actually born in New Orleans in 1975, even though he's later better associated with Miami. Uh, he is better associated with, sorry, he's better associated with Miami, but he is originally from New Orleans. In fact, if you want to go even deeper, and if some of y'all are from New Orleans, y'all might be like, oh, he's one of those type of people. That's right. Uh, he actually grows up in St. Bernard Parish. He actually grows up in St. Bernard Parish. So if you know anything about the parish, it tells you something about DJ Khaled. If you go over one side, you'll see pictures of him living in the parish. There he is living in the parish. Uh, he's somewhat familiar with the New Orleans rap scene. Not a big-time rap mover shaker in New Orleans. Um, he is friendly with Birdman and Baby of Cash Money Records in the early 90s. However, in 1998, he is going to move to Miami. He's going to move to Miami in 1998 and begin working at a rap radio station as a DJ. And really, Miami becomes his base of operations. Where he becomes best known for is doing stuff in Miami. Uh, he also... While he becomes a DJ at a rap radio station, he also begins hosting a radio show, Go Over One Slide, with Uncle Luke, Luther Campbell, you know, the guy from Two Live Crew, Luke Skywalker. We well, can't say that because Lucasville might sue you. But yeah, Uncle Luke, Two Live Crew, they host a radio show together. They, they host a radio show together. Um, that's really gets a bit more credibility. Uh, unlike the, uh, by the way, he's not the only rap personality to get their start in rap radio. Uh, Ludacris is another good example of somebody who starts out as like a rap personality on the radio and then starts rapping himself. But unlike the other names on this list, Khaled doesn't really rap, nor does he really have a background in sound engineering. Like, I, I know DJ Khaled's music, he might shout things that like how we're the best and, you know, DJ Khaled and another one and things like that. But he doesn't really rap or sing on his stuff. And likewise, he doesn't really do the sound engineering. Um, he's a producer in name, 
but he's mainly a, a hype man, mainly a hype man who's really good at building relationships. Uh, very good at building relationships. Uh, he is a member of the Terror Squad, which that is something I did not realize until I was doing research for this about a year ago. That oh my god, DJ Khaled was in the Terror Squad. Uh, that's Fat Joe's unit from New York. It's a New York group, and he might have done some producing with them. It gets very fuzzy. Uh, mainly a, a hype guy, mainly an idea guy. For instance, uh, that shot where it says, I still can't believe he was actually in the Terror Squad. Uh, that's from the Lean Back music video, which I remember was popular when I was in college. And I saw that video a million times. I never recognized DJ Khaled, but there he is holding up a Terror Squad chain. So go figure. Uh his first album comes out in, uh, in 2006. If you look at it, when we're sorry, it's called Listen. Um, pretty much all guest spots. He pretty much all guest spots. He quote-unquote produced a lot of it, but mainly let others do the sound engineering. And I'll give it for DJ Khaled. Uh, people will record for him. That, that is one thing I will say about DJ Khaled. Uh, there's DJ Khaled with Rick Ross, Fat Joe, Baby, Lil Wayne, We Taken Over. Um, people will record for him. Like, I don't know why necessarily. Sorry, I'm not trying to be hard on DJ Khaled. But like a lot of people record for him. A lot of different styles and artists work for DJ Khaled. In 2008, he starts his own record label. Of course, We The Best Music. We The Best Music puts out more songs. He uses more artists. Uh, unlike the other producers on this list, he doesn't really come to fame through his work with one particular rapper. Um, there's no one who like – he works with exclusively. Like there are rappers and people who work with him a lot. I mean, Little Wayne seems cool with him, but other people have been on his stuff a lot. I know Bieber, Justin Bieber's done some stuff, but Justin Bieber's not a rapper by any stretch of the imagination. Um, now is DJ Khaled becoming a star as a hype man, a perversion? But um, eh, you might be able to talk about that on the on the uh, on the discussion page. But let's go to another one. That's right. Uh, probably the king of the producer of personality is this fella right here, Mr. Kanye West, but I'm going to need much more time to talk about him. And honestly, we've been talking for quite a while. So let me just wrap things up. Let me just wrap things up. It also begins the whole dynamic of the new truth is ah, go to the final, final, final slide. In the mid-2000s, it really begins the dynamic that there was no functional difference, people claimed, between hip-hop and pop music. Uh, people complain that the same producers are making the same beats and having verses and hooks sung by the same artist. You know, how can you really tell the difference between like a Pharrell song where, I don't know, Justin Timberlake's on it versus a Justin Timberlake song where Pharrell's on it? Like they say the beats sound the same. There's rapping elements of it. Uh, the mid 2000s were the height, early 2000s and mid 2000s were the height of the rap sung collaboration where like you have an R&B singer do the, do the, the hook or the chorus and a rapper do the verse. This would change in time, of course, with the development of new genres, but it seemed like guys like Pharrell had their hands in everything. This role has also changed, and the role of producer has changed a lot due to online things. As you may know, through things like SoundCloud, um, it's a lot easier to make a beat and sell it. It's a lot easier to make a beat and sell it. Like, if you go on SoundCloud or various music um, marketplaces online, you'll find beats that you can buy by people. I think probably most famously, Lil Nas X bought the beat for Old Town Road for, I believe it was 50 bucks. But the issue is compensation. Compensation becomes the real issue. And I believe that's your discussion question this week. So let's talk about that for a little bit. 
What is the dynamic between the rapper and the producer? Frankly, who needs whom more? Is the relationship between rappers and producer more parasitic, where you basically have one person like mooching off the other person, or symbiotic, where they truly need each other? Think about it. You know, if you're a rap, if you're an upcoming rapper, if you're an upcoming rapper, probably the easiest way to get radio play or get a lot of exposure is to get a produ- get a big name producer to produce for you. Get a big name producer to produce for you. By God, that's going to get some ears on your product. So maybe you have to raise a bunch of money to you know. I mean, the the the, the rates that some of these producers charge. Uh, I'm trying to think for the longest time. I'm trying to think who I know for a fact. Um, I want to say for the okay. Mid mid two thousands Neptunes, it was at least one hundred and fifty grand per song. If you wanted, if you wanted Pharrell and Chad Hugo to produce your song, it was at least one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now, if you're just a guy off the street, you're probably not going to have that. If you're a record label, well, you know, you might have to pony that up. But maybe you only have three, you know, two hundred thousand dollars for the entire production of this album. Um, you know, is the producer taking too much money because they think they can get it from them? However. Producers are also theoretically at the at the mercy of the artist. You know, most of these producer people, except for like Pharrell, don't really put out their own music, and a lot of times they have to pay the artist. If you're an up and coming producer, you've got to pay the artist. The other thing is compensation. This is where it gets complicated, and uh, like I said, talk about this in your discussions. The way that producers are compensated gets very complicated. Basically. Artists, musicians, rappers, whatever the heck you want to call them, they generally get paid off of sales. They generally get paid off of sales. Generally, the record label gets most of it. But like, if a song is a big hit, they generally get a percentage, uh, points, they call it, the music business. Uh, let's say you get 5%. So let's say you sell, like, I don't know, a million dollars worth. Uh, the artist is going to get 5% of that. That's pretty standard, straightforward. So if you have a massive hit that sells, like, you know, billions of dollars, the artist is going to get a lot more. However, producing is generally a flat rate. So if you're a producer who makes a hit song, you've got your money. The producer who made Little Nas X's uh, beat for Old Town Road got 50 bucks. That was his compensation. Now, to be fair to the, to the people who, who, the one flat rate, a producer is not guaranteed that any song that they produce is going to be a hit. You know, so basically a producer might, you know, put in a lot of work and they're like, look, my work, my, <laughs> My, my time and effort is worth something because, you know, if this song is a dud, because nobody knows what a hit song is going to be. Nobody knows. People come out of nowhere all the time. It gets a lot more difficult. In addition, there have been a lot of lawsuits filed by producers because they claim they are not fairly compensated by the record labels. Uh, record labels oftentimes have, stu- uh, have studio producers that they have on staff. Like, they are hired by the record label, and they are staffed by the record label, often on salary. And the thing about salary, which is nice, is, you know, you get a, a salary. It doesn't matter how hard or how little you work, you're getting the same amount of money. But if, like, they're, if the record label is, like, taking you all the time, like, hey, you're the hot producer and you're signed to one record label, unless you own the record label, you're not getting the amount of money that you deserve. You, I mean, I wouldn't say that you deserve, but you're not getting compensated equivalent to your labor because you're getting a salary. Now, if you own the record label, you probably get a better chance of getting more money. But you see how it's more complicated in the idea of, like, is it symbiotic or parasitic? You know, who's mooching off of who, or is it both equally? Is there a way that can be fairly compensated between producers and um, musicians and the record label? I mean, it might be hard to get into, but eh, I believe in you. So with that, this is Dr. Tully. My goodness, this was a long one, but by God, I think it was interesting. So have a good one.